Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. No matter how many times I read those words or hear them said, I am always blown away by them. And my response frankly, is always the same. Are you kidding me, Jesus? That's impossible. And then after I squirm with it for a minute or two, I I then go to my immediately default position about difficult passages and wonder if Jesus really said it. The Gospels were written at least a couple of generations after Jesus died. Maybe this was a copying error, I always think or perhaps a misheard or misremembered remark. So then I race off to the Jesus Seminar to learn whether that august cadre of scholars agree with me that Jesus surely couldn't have said something so outlandish. It's a mindless exercise, of course, because I know that they uniformly agree that Jesus clearly said, love your enemies. I've checked it many times. In fact, Most of these academicians believe that of all the sayings Jesus had attributed to him, this one stands as one that is unmistakably and unadornedly Jesus. So here we are. What are we to do with a passage like this? The answer is, I honestly don't know. If ever there is a season, though, when a query like this is appropriate, it seems that Lent would be it. I remember hearing an exasperated theologian speak about this verse, love your enemies, one time. What he said was, love my enemies? I don't even like my family half the time. (laughs) I got that. I think we probably all do. But it's not really the end of the answer for any of us. For you see, I really do believe that people like you and like me really do want to hear these words in such a way that they affect the way we live our lives. That they affect us in a way that makes a difference for us. Why else would we bother? But it's hard. And I've struggled with these sayings for years, usually to no sustained avail. Now, that admission does not bode well for the fact that you're going to be listening to me for the next few minutes trying to talk about it. My plan is simple, though. To offer a brief compendium of scattershot thoughts about this extraordinary and, I believe, fundamental Christian teaching about what it may mean to us. In our well-intended lives, we want so badly to get it right. I know we do. But what might getting this right look like? 
I'll answer that by humbly presenting some thoughts for your consideration, not as a position statement of someone who has decided, but as the ponderings of a fellow struggler. When I first began to think about this admonition that we love our enemies as the preaching text for my second day here this year, the invasion of Ukraine was certainly being widely discussed, but it had not occurred. Among regular people in Ukraine and Russia and the U.S., the consensus seemed to be that it was unlikely that Putin would actually order the action, despite the fact that our own president had been saying that it was imminent. But I hoped he was wrong. As we all know, he was not. Now a frightening but largely distant authoritarian now looms larger in my consciousness than at any time I remember except during the Cuban Missile Crisis when I was such a little kid that we really believed that hiding under our desk might protect us. Like so many others after that, I thought that the possibility of another war in Europe had largely been replaced with a new and improved world order. That there might be a scattering, an all too frequent scattering of warring around the world, but not within the comfort of my Euro-American-centric world. And yet here we are holding our breaths, praying, worrying, do whatever it is that we do when we're most anxious. To hear Jesus' words vis-a-vis -vis this moment confounds us anew. And once again, the words, really, Jesus? Question turns in my mind. Putin, I think, is a really bad character. Duh, I think we all think that. And yet, Jesus did not say, love your enemies except the ones who are truly bad actors. He didn't say that. During these days of being forced to confront the reality of a man like Putin, I have found myself several times thinking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have as well. This treasured luminary, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in our faith history, chose in the face of Hitler's atrocities to be part of an assassination plot. Can you love an enemy as you participate in planning to kill him? Does your desire to save others the despot might kill by killing him make that decision situationally correct? I don't know. Maybe all we can do is struggle I will tell you that I can't quite bring myself to say that I hope Putin is assassinated. But if I'm honest, I can't guarantee what my deepest feelings would be if I heard that he had been taken out. I know I would feel relief. But then I think about what an awful expression been taken out is. I'm sorry that in my vernacular I can so easily include such a phrase? No answers, just questions there. Another difficult moment along these lines occurred while I was living in New York City at the time that Osama bin Laden was killed. As the news broke, 
The city, which had been wounded so badly by the egregious acts of this man, erupted in a jubilant cry of relief and revenge. The rejoicing was carnival-like, and I got it. But it made me uncomfortable, terribly so. Rejoicing in the death of another human being, even one capable of horrific acts toward us, can that be good for us? I don't know. Maybe one way to live these challenging words of loving our enemies is to decide that as a position of personal faith, we refuse to delight in the death of another human being regardless of the circumstances. We can be glad that the threat has ended, but to celebrate the death of another child of God, which is what we believe that other person is, no matter how twisted, evil, or disturbed, that can't be, surely, what Jesus, the one whom we want to emulate, desires for us. Can it? Maybe these questions are unanswerable. I know they're exhausting. Here's another one that seems a little bit easier. If we, any one of us, are lucky enough to have some investments, perhaps one way of responding to the radical love of Christ is to look carefully at our portfolios to see how much money we may be making from the development and selling of the newest, deadliest weapons that our 21st century minds can come up with. Would it make a difference if Christians simply began to say, seems to me we've probably got enough weaponry right now to demolish the whole world. Let's direct our investments to something that doesn't kill somebody. Not being pious or arrogant about it, just looking for ourselves. Surely there's money to be made, we might say, by investing in something that doesn't destroy human beings. I'm not being political there. Both sides of the great awful divide in our country, Democrats and Republicans, benefit from the war machine. The economy benefits. Individuals benefit. It's the way it is. Maybe as Christians we might say, no thanks, not us, not anymore. As I said, I've struggled with this sort of stuff for a long time. This one goes way back. When Brian, my now 40-ish year old son, was little, his mom and I decided we would not buy him toy guns. As you can imagine, our decision in Jackson, Mississippi at the time was greeted with a lot of rolled eyes. Most of our families already thought we were a couple of pinkos anyway. <laughs> One day when Brian was about three, we looked out in the side yard while he was playing with another little boy in the neighborhood, and we watched as Brian was shooting the other kid with his mother's curling iron. <laughs> Just blew his head off with the curling iron. We knew we had lost. And we knew that Jesus had never said it would be uncomplicated. And then, of course, in what felt like just about a minute, we were confronted with video games that he adored 
the conceit of which was to annihilate imaginary others. Wow. Now trust me, I don't have the nerve, I didn't have the nerve then, and I certainly don't have the nerve now to try to institute a family policy about that for anybody. We know there'd be a revolution if we suddenly took video games away. But I do think that we miss a huge teaching opportunity if in our talking and teaching with children in whom we wish to inculcate the values that we cherish, that we don't at least attempt to mitigate what they're learning in that pretend world. This sort of thought may seem a little trivial, but here it is. I watch more mindless television than that to which I generally admit. But in Lent, which invites bearing it all, I've begun to think about this. Recently, on a night of watching several episodes of a British detective series, for some reason I feel less guilty if the shoot 'em up is British. <laughs> I was watching it in a, in a little binge episode. It was a touch neurotic, but I became aware of how hideously violent the entire conceit of this particular drama was. And so, about halfway through, I began to count how many people I had seen shot in that relatively short episode. I stopped counting at 10. Now, does that kind of exposure desensitize us to killing? I don't know. I'm fully cognizant that I'm watching actors, but when I get caught up in the drama of it all, I feel relief when the good guy wins, which in this case generally means that it's not his or her head that gets shot off, but that of the bad guy. And that night, in the last half of my watching, at least ten of them were pretty perfectly dead by the time the episode was over. And I like it that the good guy wins. A passing thought. Perhaps the decision to give up truly violent shows, and we know what they are, for 40 days might be a good idea for Lent this year. I bet it would be more effective than giving up chocolate. To reduce our exposure to violence, gratuitous or otherwise. I'm not making any promises for myself, I'm just wondering. And if we did decide to do it, I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't have a huge impact on the world, but it might soften our world up just a bit. It might challenge us to view in a different way the preponderance of automatic weapons and handguns that exist in this culture and that resist any desire just about to be controlled by the government or anybody else. Who knows? Maybe all that's too much. So I will end with a couple of thoughts that I almost guarantee will resonate for every one of us. In 2019, uh, the social scientist Arthur C. Brooks, not David Brooks, but Arthur C. Brooks, wrote a book entitled, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. He's a fascinating guy. He's a musician, 
who right after high school played the French horn in the Barcelona Symphony for a number of bohemian years, which sounded wonderful to me, until he finally straightened up and came back to the States and got his undergraduate degree and then ultimately a PhD in social science. During that time, he studied a whole lot in microeconomics and mathematical modeling, whatever that is, along the way. I first became aware of him as a writer for The Atlantic. I liked very much what he wrote. But then when I began to read about him, I learned, this is a real ad admission of guilt, I learned that he was considered to be a little bit conservative. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but when I read that, I thought, gee, surely I don't like this guy as much as I thought I did. Forget loving my enemy, I actually considered not liking someone I knew I liked simply because he did not affiliate in exactly the same way my tribe does. Lord, have mercy. I'm really glad that God is not a smacker. I think surely that day I would have been smacked if God were. And, and that seems petty and pitiful, and it is, but it woke me up. At least then, this is a journey, as we all know. And so I looked further. And I found that Brooks' points are really spot on. A quote from the book, which is embarrassingly simple, says this. Love and warm-heartedness, he writes, might not change every heart and mind, but they are always worth trying, and they will always make you better. His claim is that arguing our differences with one another, even sometimes angrily, is not the problem in our culture. The problem is that our disputations with one another have gone beyond robustly, angrily arguing and have devolved to the point that we hold those with different opinions from ours in contempt. Contempt is a terrible word. At its root in Old French and Latin, the word contains the notion that the one who is held in contempt has little or no value. Last time I checked, our baptismal covenant makes no allowance for contempt. It's not possible to seek and serve Christ in another whom you hold in contempt, whom you consider, consider to have no value. Brooks, by the way, who's a Roman Catholic, decries the obsession that so many of us regular non-politico Americans have become so obsessed with politics and have used the internet and social media to take a not really new phenomenon, the rough and tumble of politics, and have fashioned it into something, some kind of two-sided populism that is so filled with vitriol that it is dangerous to our cultural survival. It's a lot of words, but I believe it's right. Ordinary people who don't know squat about policy, really, and I'm one of them, having such arguments that it's destroying the fabric of our culture. 
Each side says awful things about the other. And on both sides, these egregious comments often elicit peals of laughter from the side of the one doing the dissing. I've laughed at them. In truth, they are not funny. They're crass. They're rude. And they're even a bigger sin than that. They're mean. One unlikely casualty, casualty for me in all of this, back to my television watching, is that a favorite comedian of mine, Stephen Colbert, who's one of the funniest men on television to me, has, in my opinion, become so vitriolic about his disgust with politics in our country that I cannot watch his monologues anymore. Now, no one here, certainly not the regular cavalry folks, folks, will be surprised to hear that my politics and his are pretty similar. But it's just too much. His humor is no longer funny to me. It's too angry. It's too contemptuous. And it's too mean. And it cannot be justified because the humor coming from the other side is just as bad. I've had to walk away from it. Now, admittedly, no longer getting to watch The Late Show was not a great tragedy in my case. <laughs> I'll get more sleep. But that whole little episode is a sign, at least for me, that our culture is a bit out of control. I know bad things have been said about people forever. I've done some research this year to look how people spoke way earlier, back in the 19th century, about one another. But at least then... We used to do it with a little more shame for doing it and a lot more privacy. It seems to me that people like us, because I guarantee you if you're here at 12.05 on a Friday, you're people like us. You're a person of faith. You take this seriously. And if people like us don't lead the way of saying, that's not okay and I don't want to do it anymore, we're in big trouble. Love your enemies so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Thank you, friends, new and old, for listening, thinking with me about this, for praying that we might live more in the radically alternative way to which we are called by the presence of Christ in our lives, by the presence of Christ in our minds. In all this struggle, I take comfort in having a community of faith with whom I can face these questions and others like them, where we can hold the questions often with different minds, but in search together for God's truth. There's great mercy, it seems to me, that ours is a common journey, and an even greater mercy in believing that our desire to know and follow Christ in these hard questions, that even that desire of ours is somehow pleasing to God, no matter how many times we fall short, as we invariably do again and again. May the mercy of God open our hearts, that we may see the way more clearly, and that we may love one another and our enemies along the way. In the name of God, amen.
Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.